Amen. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you. If you don't have one at home, feel free to grab one at the resource table uh, to my left on your way out. I'd love for you to have that. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you've crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Jesus, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that, is, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people... Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, there's a term called willful blindness. It's a legal term, and it's described as the deliberate failure to make a reasonable inquiry of wrongdoing, despite suspicion or an awareness of the high probability of existence. In other words, it's a deliberate choice not to know. For example, let's say that somebody was transporting drugs in a paper bag. And as they were transporting the drugs, they get caught. And they say, well, I don't know exactly what's in the bag. I was just carrying the bag with me and transporting it from here to there. I have no idea if there's drugs or what's in this bag. It's a deliberate choose, a choice not to know something. In a recent TED Talk, uh, Margaret Hefferman tells the story of a lady named Gayla Benefield. Gayla grew up in a small town called Libby, Montana. And her job was to go from house to house reading utility meters. And so she would go during the day and read utility meters, and she noticed some interesting things. She noticed that there were a lot of men who were home during the day who had trouble breathing and were on oxygen. She thought that was interesting, but she, at first she thought it was a coincidence. 
Sometime after that, her, her uh, father was diagnosed with a lung disease, and he passed away. Sometime after that, her, her mother was diagnosed with a lung disease. And after a very long and debilitating uh, illness, she passed away. So as she saw these things, as she, she saw her father die, as she saw all these men struggling with lung diseases, as she saw her mother diagnosed with lung disease, she thought there's, there's got to be something to this. Her mother came from a family where uh, her relatives lived to be a very old age, relatively healthy. She thought there's got to be something. So she started looking and digging to find out what was causing these illnesses. And the thing is, her father worked at a mine, a vermiculite mine. And vermiculite is something that was used in soil as kind of a soil uh, conditioner. It was used uh, in the skating rink. It was used as insulation. It was used on the football field. It was used on the track for track and field. Even leftovers of the vermiculite, they would put piles and heaps, and uh, the kids would play in this vermiculite. Each day, Gala's father would come home Full, full of soot up from the vermiculite from the mine, and his wife would probably pat it out, put it in the washing machine, and as a result, the whole town basically was filled with this vermiculite inside of the homes, outside of the homes. But what they didn't realize was there was a very deadly form of asbestos inside the vermiculite. Asbestos is a substance that once breathed in, it has kind of little hooks on it, and it hooks inside of your lungs and doesn't ever get out. Sometimes the effects of it aren't caused for 10, 20, or 30 years. She finally found the cause of why all these men were having trouble breathing, why her father died, why her mother was dealing with this illness. It was all from this asbestos in the vermiculite. And so she was excited to tell people what had happened. And she thought everyone would be thrilled to know, and soon they would make changes so that nobody else suffered from these diseases. But nobody wanted to hear her. She went to the governor's office. She went to all the elected officials. She went back and forth trying to tell them what was causing these illnesses, but nobody wanted to hear her. They chose to live in blindness. Even when she finally brought a lawsuit against W.R. Grace, the company that owned the mine. Many of the people in her town were opposed to her. They put up bumper stickers that said there's no asbestos here. They didn't want to hear her. After all, this company, W.R. Grace, had been gracious to them. They'd made a number of donations, donating asbestos for the track and field. Anytime they needed anything, the people of this company would come to their aid. And so they chose to live in blindness. Finally, when she did get an audience and the government got involved, they did a study of this town. They did a study of 15,000 people in this area. And they determined that the mortality rate for this area was 80 times higher than anywhere else in the entire United States. But nobody had wanted to hear. In fact, they found out that uh, the company, W.R. Grace, likely knew about the effects of asbestos decades before this happened. But they chose to be blind because it was inconvenient, an inconvenient truth. Sometimes it's easier to turn a blind eye than to deal with something that's difficult. 
that's true. And in one study, 236 college students were shown these desks. And uh, they were shown different attributes about the desk, the, the price, the quality. And then they were told kind of ethical dimensions. Some of them, they were told, were made of, out of rainforest wood, so the rainforest was cut down to make them. Others were from sustainable tree farms. And so they were asked to memorize these desks. And after uh, just a short time after they memorized them, they were able to recall which ones were from tree farms and which ones for, were from the rainforest with an accuracy of 94%. But then they gave them some kind of menial task for 15 to 20 minutes just to kind of distract them. And then they went back and asked them the same questions. And what they found was they remembered the ones from the tree farm but didn't remember as much the ones from the rainforest. They found that they were right about 60% of the time about desks made from tree farms, but right only 45% of the time about desks made of rainforest wood. Doctoral student Daniel Zane said this, it's not that the participants didn't pay attention to where the wood came from. We know that they successfully memorized that information, but they forgot it in a systematic pattern. They remembered the quality and the price attributes of the desk. It's only the ethical attributes that cause people to be willfully ignorant. They didn't want to deal with the fact that some of them were made from rainforest wood, and so they forgot those things. Another study of 402 uh, people who participated online, they showed some people, they showed this outfit with jeans that were made from child labor. Others, they showed an outfit with jeans that were not made from child labor made ethically. And the result was the same. People who saw the genes made with child labor, labor were much less likely to remember that fact just a short time later than people who saw the genes made with adult labor. Sometimes we'd rather erase things from our memory, choose not to know them than to deal with them. And we see this clearly in the passage that we're looking at today. We see that the Sadducees, the chief uh, captain of the guard, the, the priests, says that they're greatly annoyed at what is happening. They're greatly annoyed at what Peter and John are teaching, namely the resurrection and that life can be found in Jesus. They were opposed to this because Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so this upset their sensibilities. And yet Jesus has risen from the dead, and there's many witnesses who proclaim that fact, who say, we have seen the risen Lord. In verse 13, the text tells us that when Peter and John speak and when these religious leaders hear that they're uneducated and unskilled, they're amazed that they can speak in the way that they do. We have the testimony of this man who was lame from birth. And Peter speaks and he gets up and walks. They don't even try to deny that. They don't try to deny what has happened. And yet they resolve to silence them. Verse 16 says, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And in the next breath, they discuss plans to silence them, to keep this from spreading. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the witnesses, and yet they choose to live in blindness that, rather than to deal with the truth. Up until this point in the book of Acts, I think we could describe the kind of atmosphere 
and emotion of the book of Acts is triumphant. The Holy Spirit has come. 3,000 people are saved in one day. These believers gather into a community and, that ha- and this community has favor with all the people. The Holy Spirit is poured out and signs and wonders are done. And yet despite all that's happening, some will not believe. Some will choose to reject the truth. And this is not a failure of the Gospel. It's a failure of the human heart. Not everyone will accept the Gospel. And this is not simply a logical decision. Think about it this way. You know, we think about the resurrection of Jesus. And we look at the evidence and the historical record for the resurrection of Jesus. And there's so much evidence, it's, it's overwhelming. So many witnesses declare the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If it were not the fact that it was a supernatural event, everyone would believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It would not be questioned. If it was just a normal event, it would not be questioned. And so when we look at the Gospel, we look at the resurrection, it's not simply a logical decision. It's a rejection of the truth. And sometimes the reason for that willful spiritual blindness is that if there is no God, then there are no consequences. Just like last week we talked about, I told the story about the college pastor and he would meet with college students and when, he, when they were struggling in their faith and unsure about how they felt about God, usually he would find that they were doing things that they felt and knew they shouldn't be doing. If we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing, it's better in a sense that there is no God. It's like we can just keep doing what, we're, what we want, but if there's a God, then we're accountable to Him, and we need to embrace that reality. And so though it's not a logical decision, sometimes the world rejects the truth. And you think about persecution of the church around the world, and persecution is increasing exponentially. According to Open Doors USA, one in nine Christians today is fiercely persecuted. And we're not talking about just, you know, having your hand slapped. We're talking about the threat of death. One in nine Christians. Each month, 345 Christians are killed for their faith. Each month, 105 churches are attacked or burned. 105 per month. And you think about these facts and there's a sense in which it doesn't make sense. Christians are generally peace-loving people, supposed to be loving And yet there's this anger, this rage against them that is growing. It's not necessarily a logical thing, but it's a rejection of the truth. Choosing to turn a blind eye to the truth. And that being said, when we face rejection, that doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong. Jesus faced rejection. And so even in the book of Acts, as the Gospel is going forward, God's Kingdom is coming to the earth, the Holy Spirit is poured out, there's still rejection that's being faced by the apostles. Because some will choose not to embrace the truth. The world often rejects the truth and the world often attempts to silence the truth. See, the religious leaders throw Peter and John into prison and they use scare tactics to try to silence them. Just keep quiet and we won't bother you. It's it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe about Jesus, but just keep quiet about it. Keep to yourself and we won't keep you in prison. In our country, we don't experience an outright rejection of the faith. In our country, we don't face persecution 
in, in the same scale that, we, that our brothers and sisters overseas sometimes face. But we do face systematic attempts to silence us as believers. It's okay to believe whatever you want to believe as long as you keep quiet about it. It's okay to believe whatever you want to believe as long as you don't make anyone feel excluded. It's okay to believe what you want to believe, but don't say that all men must repent. Say some men, if they choose or feel inclined to do so, must repent. You can be a Christian as long as you believe that everyone's all the same and all religions lead to God. John C. Richards of the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton College said this, when it comes to religion, the word exclusive is synonymous with bigot. Even worse, Christians who communicate the exclusivity of their faith are castigated and dismissed. And the hot topic today is this belief that you can be a Christian as long as you believe that not only that homosexuality is okay, but that it's something to be celebrated. Or you can believe in, in, and be a Christian as long as you don't believe that stuff in the Bible. As long as it's just, just kind of a suggested course of action. As, or, as long as it's just kind of a guidebook of helpful rhymes and aphorisms. Jeff King, president of International Christian Concern, said this, Persecution in the U.S. isn't comparable to overseas. Yet there have been too many Christians fired or sued, too many negative court cases and laws to miss a clear trend. Most governments don't publicly declare their hostility toward religion. They use laws like zoning or employment to push it out of the public sphere. Religious freedom in the U.S. is being pushed toward private expression. Just this past weekend after I finished working on this message, I was just kind of scrolling through the news, and I saw this story about a, a conference in Texas. I think it was called like the Circles Conference, and this, it was, this conference was for like creative types, graphic designers, and things like that. And so they, for this conference, there was a pastor at a local church, uh, the Village Church, which is the same church Matt Chandler is the pastor of. And uh, this pastor was like a graphic, uh, creative arts type pastor. He took care of their marketing and probably their website and things like that. And so he was supposed to speak at this circles conference. But this group kind of caused a stir about it and said that they were, uh, that this church that he went to was anti-homosexual and, and all this stuff, which was not true. And as a result, he was disinvited from going to speak at this conference just because he was a Christian. And we see that more and more in our world today as the world tries to silence or marginalize us as Christians or try to make us appear to be hateful or angry. The world often rejects the truth. The world often attempts to silence the truth. But the good news is the world cannot stop the truth. Look at how the Apostles, Peter and John, respond. Look how they respond to the threats and commands of the authorities. They say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You see what the apostles do here? They locate what they're saying outside of themselves. What they're 
declaring is something that's bigger than themselves. This is not Peter and John's philosophy on life. This is not Peter and John's religion. Jesus has risen from the dead. The Spirit has been poured out. The signs and wonders have been done indicating that the presence of God is with men. Sins are being forgiven. Lives are being changed. And Peter and John are just witnesses of that reality. And so they're like, we, the only thing we can do is say what we've seen, what we've heard. We're not making stuff up. We're not creating a sect or a religion. We're just witnesses of what God has done. And the result is, even despite the effects of these religious leaders, despite the attempts for them to silence the message, the message goes out. Verse 21 says that all were praising God for what had happened. The truth cannot be stopped because it's rooted in the reality of God. Remember the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent to prison. And while he was in prison, he sent word to Jesus through his disciples and asked Jesus, are you the Christ or should we wait for someone else to come? And as they were asking that, they were, or as John was asking that, he's probably thinking to himself, I'm in prison. I don't see the kingdom of God here. What's going on? Look at how Jesus responds. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. He says, look at what's happening, John. My kingdom is breaking into the earth. This is not just a philosophy. This is not just a teaching. God has come to the earth. And for us as believers, Jesus' kingdom is still breaking into the earth. Jesus has risen from the dead. Sins are being forgiven. People's lives are being transformed. And Christianity is not simply a philosophy. It's not just about a book. It's about lives that are being changed. It's about a reality that God is bringing out in the lives of men and women. And because God is behind it, nothing can stop it. Blaise Pascal once said this, the example of noble deaths such as the Spartans and others hardly move us, for we do not see what good it is to us. But the examples of the deaths of Christian martyrs move us, for they are members, they are our members, having a common bond with them, so that their devotion inspires us not only by their example, but because we should have the same. The history of the church should more accurately be called the history of truth. The history of the church should more accurately be called the history of truth. Truth going forward. We live in a culture where it can be discouraging to be, be a Christian. We see our brothers and sisters overseas who are being fiercely persecuted. We see in our own country attempts to silence, marginalize, or consider people considering us to be hateful even though we're filled with love. Yet we have the assurance that truth is stronger than darkness. We have the assurance that we're witnesses to a reality that's bigger than us. A reality that's unstoppable because God is bringing it about. There's an ancient book called First Esdras. In First Esdras chapters 3 and 4, they tell the story about how King Darius one day called a great feast for his governors. So he called together 127 of his governors and he had a kingdom from Ethiopia to India. 
huge kingdom. And for that feast, there were four men who were brought forward, and they were to tell the king one sentence of wisdom. And there, it was kind of a contest. Whoever had the most wise saying would be given a gold robe, a gold glass. They'd sit at Darius's right hand, be considered one of his relatives. And so these four young men wrote one sentence of wisdom, put it in an envelope, and then put it under Darius's uh, pillow before he went to sleep. Then the next day, he called those four young men before him. And he called them, all of his governors together, and these four men were going to defend their propositions, defend their pieces of wisdom. The first one had written, wine strongest. In defense of his proposition, he cited the well-known effects of strong drink, how it leveled all distinctions of rank, making the fatherless child and the king on the throne as one, how it could cause a man to forget pain and remember neither sorrow nor debt. How it made the poor imagine themselves rich, but also how it made men forget both friends and brethren and fight with one another, arousing a hidden personality of evil within them so that afterward they could not remember what they had done or said. For these reasons, he said, wine was strongest. The second had written, the king is strongest. In defense of his proposition, he pointed to the unlimited sway over land and sea such a monarch as Darius had. In the remotest parts of his word, of the word was law. If he commanded one people to make war upon another, it was done. Man slew and were slain at his bidding. The farmers brought forth their increase and bore it unto the king as tribute. Only one man, yet none, dared to depart without his permission. And what he desired, that they fulfill. What could be, this, what could be stronger than such a power? Third wrote, Women are strongest. In defense of his proposition, he reminded the judges how kings might be great upon the earth, but that it was women who bore them, and without women men could not be. Gold and silver and all goodly things men forsake in behalf of a woman. Even a man's own father and mother he would forsake for love of a woman. His country, too, he would forego if love called upon him to do it. All the fruit of his labor man will give to a woman. For woman's sake, man sails the seas and crosses the river and fights with wild beasts and walks in darkness. For women, men make fools of themselves and become slaves of passion. For her sake, being drawn the epitaph of many a man. By thousands, men sin and perish because they were drawn on by the awful and mysterious power of love for a woman. The fourth had written, truth is strongest. In defense of his proposition, he told his judges how all the earth called upon the truth, how heaven had blessed it, how evil works trembled in the presence of the truth. Wine and kings and women are strong and they are wicked, but all of them perish. Truth, he said, endureth forever. She is the source of justice and order. She is the strength, kingdom, power, and majesty of all ages. When he had finished, all the people shouted and said, Great is truth. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overtake it. Truth always overcomes falsehood. Truth is stronger than lies. The world often tries to reject the truth, attempts to silence the truth, but the world cannot stop the truth. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your truth is never failing. Despite what the world tells us, despite what's going on in our country and the world, your truth remains the same. You are faithful today. You'll be faithful tomorrow. You'll always be faithful to your people. And that we're witnesses not of our own philosophy, a way of doing life, but we're witnesses of your love and your grace, of your resurrection. Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful to that call. That we'd faithfully love those around us. And that as we do that, your truth would shine forth. That men and women, children, would experience how great it is to know you and be forgiven by you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, this concludes our service today. Thank you for coming. Hope you guys have an awesome day.